0: Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. We entered Harvard as Negroes but graduated as blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Victor Picard. He is a professor of media policy and political economy at the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School for Communication. His book is titled Democracy Without Journalism Confronting the Misinformation Society. I'm joined by 12 of my Harvard classmates.
1: Hi, everybody. Um, I'm in Tacoma Park, Maryland, right outside of DC. I'm a uh, Harvard Radcliffe class of 63. I'm a almost totally retired clinical psychologist. And I read this morning in the online Washington Post that as of December 25th, the Post magazine is going kaput.
2: Ooh. So that's
1: just, uh, just uh, something I'd like to add to this conversation.
2: Oh,
3: wow. Wow.
1: That's me.
0: Okay, John.
3: Hi, I have taken to my bed with some kind of flu, but not COVID Ooh. here in Ann Arbor, Michigan.
4: Ken. Ken Manister. I'm in uh, Los Altos, uh, California, and uh, it's raining, which is wonderfully weird. Uh, Bill? Bill Collins. Been in Aiken, South Carolina for about 30 years. (laughs) Background in nuclear power and waste and all that kind of stuff. Jerry?
3: Uh, Environmental lawyer. I live in Pasadena, California. Worked for the feds, for the state, for private industry, for nonprofits, uh, and enjoying life. (laughs) alden
5: alden briscoe and uh we have rain here too not very far away from ken uh which we're happy about um i did have an interesting experience i was on a plane over thanksgiving on tuesday going to miami florida to see my brother and sister-in-law or uh, sister-in-law and brother-in-law and uh my two seatmates happened to be uh kanye west and nick fuentes who were on their way to have dinner oh, wow. uh, uh, Don really? oh wow. it was an interesting conversation such as such as uh, anyway nick
6: i can't even come close <laughs> uh nick bancroft uh medfield massachusetts outside of boston and uh same class 63 um, um business school then peace corps uh in india for a couple of years back um in boston um uh, wills trusts uh, investments and retired now
0: okay
7: ronnie uh ron blau newton massachusetts where it is sunny uh on my last flight, my seat was my wife, but that's not worth a podcast. Oh, <laughs> oh. oh. Are, you, oh out of that Are you sure? Are you
4: sure?
0: <laughs>
7: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it is. It actually, yes. it is.
0: Hey, Marcy.
2: Um I'm living and working in New York. Uh, I helped lead the West in <clears> the fight throat> against throat> the Westway boondoggle to get billions for mass transit instead. And now disinformation is being used with the help of the media to build that same boondoggle in the Hudson River all over again.
8: Uh, Hi, I'm Doug Shapiro living in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I've had careers as a clinical uh, physician um, as a behavior animal behavioral ecologist, and as a pharmaceutical physician overseeing and designing clinical drug trials. Jeff,
9: oh well, as you know, I'm I'm living in Spain. Uh, also from the same uh, Harvard class of '63, um, and uh, this uh, after some years of teaching sociology, uh, I uh, I decided that I the best, the best way to talk about social problems and and really get into um, what is happening to people was through fiction, where you get into their lives. So I've been writing fiction. Okay,
3: <laughs> David, David Allen, I conquered mass, as we've already established this uh, this lunch time here, um, but grew up uh, across the river from where Doug now lives. Uh, Cross River in Indiana. Part of my soul is still there. Um, A pastiche of a life, uh, business, academics. The last part of it, however, entirely focused on democracy and particularly uh, freedoms that journalists might bring. So looking forward to today. Okay, Spencer.
4: Hi, Spencer here uh, in uh, Florida where it's... uh... 70
10: degrees and 72 now and uh very sunny and uh i am a six uh, harvard 60 uh i wanted to say 63 wishfully i don't want to ta- have to take off two years 61. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and uh my uh, my focus now is on uh, sustainable development and sustainable development education david <clears> athmar
6: <throat> i'm sitting in my uh house about four blocks from the University of Pennsylvania, probably six blocks from Victor's office, if he's <laughs> in his office, uh, and uh, so welcome. Uh, <laughs> my, my background is, uh, is, is basically in public television and public radio, and I was station manager at WHOI for many years, retired many years ago, uh, and uh, prior to that, grew up in South America.
10: Uh, Mason Morfitt in subarctic uh, Freeport, Maine. <laughs> <clears throat> Just survived a very noisy three days of installing heat pumps and coming up with a lot of questions I should have asked before they put them in, like will it blow my generator when the power goes out?
6: <laughs>
9: <laughs>
11: All right, Ann. Hi, I'm also class of 63, retired academic librarian and current climate activist living in Peterborough, New Hampshire. Where we'll get to 100% renewable energy by
0: 2050.
4: Oh, all right. Ooh.
0: Hampton, <laughs> Hamp. I'm in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh,
6: I just finished reading uh, <clears throat> Ben Rawlins on uh, called the Tree Line, and we, which is amazing, absolutely amazing. It, it uh, and
0: I think we really need a information society, uh, getting, working our way through the uh, misinformation is exhausting. Hmm. OK, and Victor, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. Nice to see you.
12: Thank you, Kent. It's been wonderful hearing from all of you. It's, we have quite a national, international crowd here. So this, is, this has been a wonderful cross-section. I've really enjoyed getting to learn something about all of you. Thank you for inviting me today.
0: OK, good. Okay, so tell us about your book and tell us about your work. Sure. Well, uh, there's
12: once I start talking about my book, it's hard to get me uh, to stop talking. And I I should be clear, it's not about the book; it's about this problem uh, about Uh future journalism. So uh, I I tend to get a little little uh, engaged on this issue, and so please stop me at any moment. But, uh, but basically, I am at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm at the Annenberg School for Communication. I've been here now for a bit over a decade. I was at NYU for a couple of years before that. I worked in Washington, D.C. for a while. And my work is always focused on the policies and the politics uh, behind our media system. But uh, in, in at least for the last 10 years, I've really been, as I already said, fixated on this question about the future of journalism or whether it has a future, what, what might that look like? Um, and I'm always very keen to raise awareness about our news media among people outside of academia, um, that uh, nothing about it was inevitable or, or natural. It's based on explicit policies that were driven by particular politics. And once we understand that, I think we realize that it is open to change, that we can change our media system so that it actually serves democracy. And I guess to really summarize all of my work, I focus on how our media system can both constrain and enable democracy. And you know, ultimately, I think that's what we're all, or at least many of us are concerned about these days, about the, not just the future of journalism, but indeed the future of our democracy writ large. So, and that is, uh, that is what my book was focused on, was really trying to raise awareness about the uh, precarious state of our news media, the entire news media system, but local journalism in particular, and why this matters for democracy, why we all have a stake in it, and what we should do to try to confront this problem so, so I, I think it's such an important question, not just the what you know what needs to be done, but how are we going to do it?" And to begin asking that assumes that it can be done and 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 I do think it can be done. It will not be done easily. It won't happen tomorrow or even a year from now, but I think it's something that we need to have on the horizon that we are working towards if we recognize that. If we don't do anything, things are only going to get worse. And I think that's a good place to start as well. If we don't do anything, what's going to happen? We know what's going to happen. We know that even more newspapers are going to collapse. More communities are going to be left without any access to any local news media whatsoever. And they're going to be turning more to various forms of miss and disinformation. So we know this will be bad for democracy if we do nothing. There's a couple, couple data points, we might call them that give me a little bit of hope um, about us actually rising to to the task at hand. One is that historically, I mean, you've mentioned our constitution and that it enshrines individual liberties. This is true, but there were also, at least among the the framers, and I don't want to romanticize the the, the framers or the founders, um, they were very flawed individuals and many of their actions were not noble by any stretch. But one thing they did understand was that the market would not solve all of our problems. And therefore, there was a sense of not just individual freedoms, but also collective freedoms. There was at least a vague notion of what today we would call public goods. And one great example of this was the postal system. So early on, there was a debate about how do we design the postal system, which in the early 1800s, about 95% of the weight of the post was comprised of newspapers. So it was really a newspaper delivery infrastructure, sort of like the internet of the 1800s. And the, our early policymakers never thought that the market would guarantee that newspapers would get disseminated to far-flung communities. They saw very early on that the government would have to subsidize this infrastructure. So in some ways, they were already seeing this news delivery system as a kind of utility, a kind of utility that would not be left entirely to the market. So I think we can identify these moments in history where the American common sense wasn't where it is today. Today, it's a very kind of market fundamentalist. Some people would call it a neoliberal paradigm where all we care about are the individual's we think, you know, as long as there's a free market, that's going to satisfy all of our needs. And there's very little, uh, the, the, our public sector, is, as you all know, is, is pretty small. Um, so I think we can look historically to show that it wasn't always that way. And once we realize it wasn't always that way, we can start thinking it doesn't have to be this way going forward. I also, a couple other things I'll mention very quickly we have polling data that shows that even across the ideological spectrum, people still care about local media, even among constituencies, conservatives, for example, who say they might hate the media. They assume it's you know liberal media. They hate big media. And this is true among people on the left as well. But when you start talking about local media, their local newspaper, their local broadcaster, people tend to have warm, fuzzy feelings about those institutions. And those are the institutions that are dying. So I think we could start to imagine a moment when we see local journalism as we see public education. You know, we would never let our local close up shop simply because it wasn't profitable. And if we start viewing journalism as that kind of public service, a public good, the market will not support, I think we can start imagining a scenario where we start funding it. And when we say things like $10 billion, that sounds like a a tremendous amount of money, but that is still so small compared to what most democracies spend towards their public broadcasting systems. It's still pretty modest when you compare it to like typical tax cuts towards many of the plans that Biden, uh, at least try to try to implement um so you know it, it's all relative but i do think it's not as crazy as it might first sound
5: okay Alden. uh three questions first one for kent was that a was that a yeah. raccoon that was coming in front of your screen oh, or that was that
0: my your cat. cat that was my cat <laughs> <Okay>.
5: mm-hmm. <laughs> um second question uh victor has to do with the the financing of News, both local and national, in the past. Am I right that most of that was advertisement? That is that. Well, we want to historically
12: uh, situate that. It was mostly advertising from the late eighteen, basically from the eighteen eighties onwards. Before that, it was more of a mixed uh, revenue model. It came from support from readers. It came from the political parties. Remember the, the partisan press era political parties were subsidizing their their own local news organizations and also from government not just through postal subsidies but also printing subsidies they would subsidize newspapers to print official documents so it was not as advertising driven until the press commercialized in the 1880s i should and i should qualify that to say heavily commercialized it was there was a commercial element to our press system from the earliest days in fact many of the earliest advertisements Running the press were slave ads. Uh, you know that was baked into the early model of, of, of uh, supporting newspapers. Um, but but that was only about you know maybe somewhere between twenty percent of their revenue. And then in the eighteen hundred, late eighteen hundreds, it became upwards of eighty percent of their revenue, and that remained true until recent years. So you're absolutely right. Once the advertising model collapsed, that was their business model.
5: Mm. Uh, The third question is, and I'm sorry, I have not read your book, but you probably covered the book. Are there other examples outside of the U.S. where they have been successful? I mean, there's the BBC, and I don't know how successful that is, but are there other examples? Yes. So there are two
12: international examples, broadly speaking, that I point to. One is the public broadcasting model, which... Every major democracy on the planet has a robust public broadcasting system. When we, and I've done this comparative research, when you look at how much we spend towards our public broadcasting system at the federal level, we're almost literally off the chart. We spend about $1.40 per person per year towards our public broadcasting. Canada spends over $30. The Brits spend about $100 per person per year for their BBC. In the Nordic countries, as you might imagine, they spend upwards close to $200 per person per year. We also show positive correlation between those countries that have the strongest public broadcasting systems also happen to have the strongest democracies. It doesn't necessarily show correlate, uh, Sorry, causation, but there's certainly a sort of positive correlation uh, between demo- having democr- strong democracies and strong public broadcasting systems. And then the one other model that I point to is that in some countries they directly subsidize their newspapers? Like the Nor- again, the Nordic countries will go into a newspaper market and subsidize every newspaper except for the largest market operator, the largest newspaper, so that it it basically ensures a certain level of media <clears throat> diversity. You know, make sure that you don't have one newspaper towns. And in countries like Norway, they've actually been able to. Shield off uh, most of their journalism crisis. I won't say completely, but they're doing much better than we are here in the states.
0: Why? Why have we ended up spending so little just historically?
12: Yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't foreordained. Um, you know, there were moments in our history where I think we almost had a much different media system. And I'll give you one example. So, my first book focuses focused on the history of American uh, media. Uh, And I really focused in the 1930s, 1940s. And in the 1930s, when we first established our our broadcasting system, it started before that. But when we first sort of concretized it, there was a real debate in Congress about whether it should be commercial or nonprofit. And we came fairly close to establishing somewhere between 20 and 25 percent of the American airways were meant to be kept nonprofit. So it would be an exaggeration to say that we almost had a BBC here in the States, but we almost had something much closer to the BBC than what we have today. And that narrowly missed. And then of course it became naturalized as, you know this is just the American way, but really our broadcasting system is different from all broadcasting (laughs) systems around the planet. And I just try to show like, it didn't have to be that way. There was actually a real debate it could have gone in this other direction, and of course, once it goes down one path, it sort of stays there. Um, and we didn't get broad, public broadcasts until <clears> the late '60s, <throat> you know, which is when how we finally got NPR and PBS. But it was always kept very weak in terms of you know how much we're going to fund it. That wasn't the initial blueprint, but just politically, that's how you know they didn't want it to have too much power. They were worried about a liberal bias. Uh, you know, they didn't want government to be spending lots of money on, on the media system. So, but the, none of this was inevitable. We could have ended up with something very different than what we have today. Mm-hmm.
6: Mm-hmm. Victor, can can you describe how the Philadelphia Inquirer is uh, is is funded? Philadelphia Inquirer is, is a <clears throat> obviously a Philadelphia paper, and it's it's a it's a robust paper that has very little advertising. So, and the, how that how that transit and it used to be full of ads how that transition happened and and what it is, what's the basis of it now?
12: Yes, yes, so I'm glad you asked that question because the newspapers here in Philly are very different. There's a different ownership structure than what you see in most places around the US. And it is owned, so the Lenfest Institute is a nonprofit that owns all the newspapers, all the major newspapers in Philadelphia and so, what you have—it's a particular kind of nonprofit. It's called a public benefit corporation (PBC). And this is a basically a tax structure, which gives them certain um, tax advantages. <clears throat> in order, as long as they are able to say, "We do not privilege profit over our public service mission," and the fact that our newspapers are owned by this nonprofit reduces some of the commercial pressures, which is one of the reasons why you don't have as much advertising. Um, I would say another reason, too, is that just there's there, advertising doesn't uh, pay as well as it used to. So okay. advertising is kind of naturally drying up on its own, but it basically allows the, you know, it removes the newspaper from the quarterly returns, having to satisfy Shareholder, you know, it's just changing the whole dynamic, the whole logic that's driving the newspaper. <clears throat> and I think it's really, a, a really interesting example of an alternative to the purely commercially driven newspaper model that we st- that's still the dominant model. I mean, I would even like to see it go further and be just entirely nonprofit, because right now, even though our newspapers are owned by this nonprofit, the newspapers themselves are still for profit. Right. So they still want to make sure that they're making money. And I think ideally we would just have nonprofit newspapers completely.
6: Are there other examples around the country that are interesting?
12: Yes. Yeah, so the Salt Lake Tribune uh, recently became—I say recently—it's been a few years now—became uh, a nonprofit. Um, there was a real fight to rescue the Tribune papers from being bought up from Alden Global Capital, which is one of these hedge funds. Um, that's by, it's Basically, they're the last ones that see any commercial value in newspapers, and they're buying them up. They're sometimes referred to as vulture capitalists because they swoop in, buy up these distressed newspapers, and begin selling them off for parts, selling off their parking lots, their, their, their real estate, of course, laying off journalists and trying to eke out any last bit of profit. And of course, they're not concerned about the local community. So there's been a real national push to try to save, you know, try to rescue these newspapers from the likes of Alden Global Capital. And they there was a real battle over the Tribune Papers, especially around the Baltimore Sun. They lost that battle, but at least what they did do, a local philanthropist started a new nonprofit uh, paper in Baltimore to compete with the Alden-owned Baltimore Sun. Um, so, you, you, you know, I think there are these glimmers of, success stories or at least exemplars that we can point to as alternatives my one lingering concern about all this while on one hand i want to lift up these you know i don't want to i don't want it to be all doom and gloom so i want to show like look there are these exciting experiments out there but at the same time i try to show that these this these are not systemic fixes right just because we have one interesting experiment happening here and there we we really need to come at this with a with a systemic alternative. And I'm not seeing that yet, but that's, uh, you know, that's something that maybe that's the 10 year plan or the,
8: the 50 year plan.
12: I, I don't know. We need to work towards that.
8: Uh, yeah. I'd like to, uh, to kind of focus on a, a slightly different aspect of uh, newspapers and it has to do with whether there's a big difference in the, the experience of readers uh, between reading And the old fashioned kind of in print print, uh, newspaper on on real paper and reading articles online. Um, And uh, I mean, well, I I, I personally actually prefer the old fashioned kind of thing. I like kind of flipping through newspapers and quickly scanning all over the place. And nowadays, you have to, you know, very discreetly go through a set of choices uh, on your screen and decide what to open up and what to read and what not to do that. And to me, it's a very different kind of experience. And I just wonder, you know, what your thoughts might be about that.
12: Yes, that's a great question. And there actually are studies showing that when people read news online, they tend to skip You know, skim through it much more quickly. They spend less time with it with a typical news story. Um, They're you know just like clicking through stuff, so they're not having the same kind of enriching experience, and presumably they're not getting as much information uh, from online news as they would be from the old-fashioned broadsheets. But that said, I often you know when I'm talking about these issues, I I will often say up front that it really isn't about newspapers per se right it's it's i mean i have a nostalgic uh, relationship i still get the sunday times but that's about it uh delivered to our house and you know ink stained fingers and, and wrestling through the broadsheets is something i enjoy doing but it's it really doesn't come down to that kind of uh romantic you know emotional attachment it's more about the fact that newspapers are the only institutions that are still producing original local reporting There are exceptions. There are some public broadcasting stations. There are still some commercial outlets that do some good journalism. By and large, even in their beleaguered state, it is the newspaper industry that acts as the informational feeder for our entire news media ecosystem. So if we lose newspapers, we're really losing a good part of our uh, overall uh, news media, our, our overall journalism, especially at the local level. So, so, I'm only bringing that up because once we start talking about, like, isn't it better reading it, you know, in the dead tree version of the newspaper, it starts sounding like I have this, you know, nostalgia for it, for newspapers themselves. And it's really not about the newspapers. It's about the journalism. Right. But I agree with you that I don't think people online are reading as much. um, And also they're not paying for it. And that's the other problem that we haven't really talked about yet is that once we acknowledge that the advertising revenue model is irreparably gone. It's never coming back. We then often will go to readers and say, well, then, you know, readers, if advertisers aren't paying for our news media, the readers should pay for it. And that sounds intuitively fair, but we have the data by now to show that most readers aren't going to pay for their news. They're either unwilling or unable. Also, if you have a pay to read system, you're basically guaranteeing that poor, poor people won't have access to local news and information. So it's not an ideal uh, model. But I'm sorry, you, you asked a very good question. I sort of, I ran with it. But, uh, no, but yeah, that's good. I, I just like
8: a, a quick follow up. Uh, Louisville has what, in my view, is actually a very good local newspaper. Uh, there's a lot of uh, investigative journalism, and they, they run all kinds of articles about Uh, important issues in the the local community, whether it's in the school system or, you know, police community interactions or whatever. Um, But what they've also been doing is basically trying to force the reader to switch over from reading, subscribing to a daily printed version and going to an online version. And the difference in the, the cost to the reader is enormous. I mean, and, and I actually resisted making the switch for a long time, but the difference in price became so great that eventually I decided, well, I'd better give up and just do this. Um, but h- how, how does this difference in the in the cost to the reader uh, influence what goes on in in, in your local community? Yeah, tremendously. And I'll give
12: you another example. So I'm originally from Pittsburgh and the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, which I believe is still, um, the the news workers there are still still on strike. Uh, um, the, The ownership there has been horrendous. But that used to be a celebrated newspaper. It's now down to two days a week home delivery and the rest of it is all online. And the product online is much inferior to the the printed product and what's interesting and somewhat counterintuitive at least until recently it was still the paper-based version of the newspaper that was actually subsidizing the digital form of it because digital advertising pays pennies to the dollar of traditional print advertising that's why and we keep saying like oh the print the advertising revenue model has collapsed well it's it collapsed because newspapers were so overly reliant on it as we said earlier you know at least 80% of their revenues came from advertising but as soon as you move online newspapers lose their monopoly over local advertising and so digital advertising pays peanuts so you know once they're moving to this digital format they really don't have a business model for it they try to do paywalls they try you know they have not been able to monetize content to the level where they can serve us any semblance of the local news and information that we need. Uh, And this is also why we're seeing news deserts form. There's just really is not a profitable formula for most news organizations. There are some exceptions, but by and large, once you move online, they simply can't sustain any significant level of local journalism. So again, another great question. And it's another reason why moving online is, you know, is, is a problem, at least we need to find another way to support the digital journalism, and, it, and the future of journalism is going to be digital, whether we want that or not. That is where things are heading. Right, But right, but right now, there's no business model. Mm-hmm. How about uh,
0: Marcy?
2: Uh, Victor. Um, I have seen both local papers in in the village in New York and public benefit corporations that get public funding controlled directly or indirectly by wealthy and powerful people who want things and they want to use the media outlets, whether they're on paper or online, to get those things. Um, So my question is, um, what about something like the BBC funding model, which has lots of people um, paying in, and then the money go right to the media outlets. Um, uh, but the tax should not be on the owners of old TV sets, but on the owners of computers.
12: That's an excellent idea. Yeah, I totally. I that, that is basically where I come down uh, in my <laughs> in my work. Um, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you put your finger. So we're we're sort of naturally covering the four big alternatives to uh to the advertising uh revenue model uh, I, or we could say there are three there's a fourth one that might come up later but the one is okay if advertisers are no longer supporting journalism then it's going to be the readers paying for it and uh, i think we're already seeing that that's not going to sustain the level of journalism we need so if re- readers aren't going to do it then benevolent billionaires. We'll do it, right? We can get our local philanthropists to pay for it. Now that that begs the observation that not all billionaires are benevolent.
7: <laughs> and
12: uh, and many, as you suggest, Marcy, come in with political agendas or even oftentimes it's not even that nefarious. It's simply that they care about particular issues and not all issues, right? So they, they have some kind of agenda that's at least implicitly passed on to whatever they're funding. And so that's not an ideal model either. It might work on for some issues, right? But it's not going to cover the general news that we all need. So then we come to what I call the public model, which, you know, the BBC is is the one that Americans are most uh, aware of. So I often will trot that out just because Americans tend to like the BBC. I don't think that's the perfect model. And I also agree with you that they need to update their, their funding so that it's not about like whether you have an antenna you know, using an antenna for your broadcast tv but it should go to uh computers yes or like you know these things um we find another way to do it because the one detail that you hinted at which is yes we individually pay into it but it can't be voluntary you know it can't be like the the local public broadcaster Every you know a couple times or a few times a year, or say like please, please pay us, you know, please donate to your local station. It, it, that's not going to people aren't bad, but the, you know that's just not going to be sustainable. You have free riders who aren't going to pay, and again, some people can't afford. So it's got to be a way where it's publicly funded across the board in a democratic fashion, and that also prevents at least rich philanthropists from capturing the system we still have to make sure there are safeguards so that
10: the government
12: can't capture it as well.
10: Excuse me, Victor. My understanding is there's a the percentage of the U.S. population that reads newspapers is now down in some incredibly small percentage. And I'm wondering what the equivalent percentages are for online news. And the broader question is, what percentage of the population wants to have general purpose news as we know it? Uh, and such that if we were to have a public pay-in system, would you ask be asking all the taxpayers to basically subsidize a small educated elite?
12: Yeah, that's an excellent question. And, and variations of that question invariably come up. Um, you're absolutely, I mean, I mean there, there are a couple of things to say up front, which is this, one way of looking at this is, is it a demand side problem or a supply side problem? And there's often an, an assumption that, you know, people on the demand side, the audience doesn't really care. So uh, and of course, we can't presume that if we build it, they will come. Right. So I think it is an important thing to ask. But on the other hand, in many ways, as a society, we benefit from this, whether everyone's consuming it or not. Right. It's 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 a, these are positive externalities. So even if I'm not reading the news, but my neighbor is reading the news. We're all going to benefit from my neighbor reading the news because that person is going to vote from a more informed position. And as a society, we're better off. So I don't think we should judge it. You know, we're never going to get 100 uh, percent consuming the news media that we think everyone should should be consuming. But we definitely have to have that supply there that we'll find various ways, even if it's just our policymakers, even if it's just elites. We never want it to be just elites. But, we, but even if only certain segments of society are reading, the, are consuming the news, it's going to benefit society. But we do have to find ways to democratize the whole thing so that it's not just the elites. And that's where I think we have local communities involved in creating their own media, in be, being in constant dialogue with local journalists. I think that's one way to engage, especially young people who, you know, a lot of the data show they're not reading the news, although they're getting news from TikTok and various social media. So again, it's like if the media is being produced, it will be it will permeate the entire media ecosystem. It's not always obvious whether it's being consumed or not. But it, but you raise really important questions. So that's we have to grapple with that.
4: Is where do you see fact checking uh, uh, operations fit into this? Politifact and things like that. I I'm, I'm assuming from what you're saying, this is kind of a sideshow. Um, But it's a slideshow I've hoped for many years would grow and have more impact. So I'd I'd be curious, your thoughts as where, if at all, does that uh, fit in uh, constructively?
12: Yes. So I I certainly don't want to dismiss the fact checking movement um, across the board. In fact, you might even be able to see. Out my window, right there is the Annenberg Policy Center. They run FactCheck.org, so uh, that's one of the main fact-checking institutions in the country, uh, and certainly they're doing important work. But as you already surmised, uh, I do think that fact-checking is not going to save us. is uh, as, as valuable of an exercise as it is. It's not, you know. There's a lot of data showing that once you have misinformation and disinformation out there. Uh, it's very difficult to undo the damage. It's certainly I mean, it almost becomes super, superfluous if you know we're trying to fact check journalists who no longer exist. I mean we're, you know if we're losing our entire you know n- news media uh, it's it's really becoming like we're trying to fact check just hot takes and commentary and opinionated um uh, news media instead of what's supposed to be you know very fact based uh, news and information. so Uh, But all that said, I do think it's important. It needs to be part of the mix. We just need to be clear eyed that it's not going to solve
4: all these problems, obviously. And would I I be correct in assuming that there's no visible, really realistic path for sort of ongoing public or other institutional funding for those efforts?
12: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I feel like they've been getting a fair amount of funding for a number of years everyone thought that was the answer, right. Especially with social media and, you know, and, and some of the misleading political advertisements. And uh, I, again, I think it needs to be um, mm-hmm. part, part of the mix, but I, I don't, you know, all part of it was became problematic too, because early on, at least they always had to show that they weren't biased. Like the fact checkers have to show mm-hmm. that they aren't biased. And when you have one side of the debate going completely off the rails, like you just can't, <laughs> You can't maintain that facade any longer. So uh, so I feel like that's injured the whole the whole enterprise. But but nonetheless, like I, I think we need to keep doing it and we should try to fund it.
1: So one of the questions, this is all wonderful and fascinating. Thank you, um, is uh, print versus TV. Um, I don't know whether you're concentrating on print. Uh, I, just as a personal example, I never watch news on TV ever because I know the images are going to stick with me and that I'm not going to sleep well at night. Um, And I also don't like to hear other people chattering at me about whatever their viewpoint is. So if I am reading it, but then I am reading it in this very linear way online, because now I'm down to the Sunday post, because it used to be partly on Saturday and partly on Sunday, but now they've decided they don't want to do that. So I'm wondering if you are talking also about uh, TV news or whether you're... Concentrating more on print media, um, so that is my question.
12: Thank you. is a great question, and I, I agree. I share your your feelings about TV, but that's not why I'm not uh, covering TV. Because actually, I don't think that's inevitable, right? I don't think television has to be that bad. I don't think you know the, the fact that they're covering the most uh, sensationalistic, uh, you know, gory details of the day um it is largely dictated by their their business model what's driving them right they're trying to keep eyeballs glued to various screens to sit through advertising that's what ratings are about it's not a popularity contest that's how they translate advertising revenue um, so uh you know i in my view in my my utopian dream we would have a multimedia system that um, is driven by public interest values not commercial values and so I do focus for now on newspapers. But again, going back to what I was saying earlier, it's not the newspapers themselves. It's just that that's where that's sort of the last bastion of actual journalism in our society. But in the the, the kind of model that I'm calling for, what I refer to as a public media center, this would be a <clears throat> multimedia community based hub so that they're producing video, audio, print across the board. Um But they're doing so where they're actually, you know, covering news or actually giving us original reporting. They're telling us what's happening at the local school board or the state legislature, the things that aren't the most exciting bits of news. um, But it's exactly that kind of stuff that democracy requires. And the market's not going to give that to us. So, um, you know, that's where my that's what my vision is. And so. Once we start working towards that model, it becomes less important whether we're talking about TV or newspapers or you know it's all multimedia news media.
7: Victor, you I was thinking about it for a while, and then you brought up the term supply side and demand side, and I was thinking about the demand side. What is the difference now for people because there was journalism, you know, yellow journalism before Hearst, who uh, you know supposedly said to one of his people in Cuba. You know, you furnish the pictures, I'll furnish the war. Um, So, you know, I I feel like it's very different, but speaking personally, and I don't know if we could generalize, I don't feel like I live in Newton, Massachusetts, in a news vacuum, because there's the Globe, there's the Herald. um, And I can look on Google News and type in Newton, Massachusetts, I get information from city councilors through emails and stuff like that. So, you know, things were biased before, and they may be biased now. But what is really the difference on the demand side for the for the reader?
12: Yeah, excellent question. And there are a few things that you mentioned there that I want to address. One, so the yellow journalism example is is brilliant. I use that a lot because I think it shows us that we've dealt with these problems before, right? I mean, I think it's very similar. We're talking about clickbait and misinformation today. It's very similar to the yellow journalism of the early 1900s. And both these things are stemming from these kind of commercial imperatives. But where we get into, where it shades, where it becomes a little bit blurry about whether this is demand side or supply side, what I'm always pushing back against is this assumption that media are just simply giving people what they want. So if there's yellow journalism, well, people are paying for that and, you know, it sells, so it's their fault. You know, like the media organizations aren't, aren't to blame. But in fact, in my view, the supply determines the demand to some extent, right? Not always. I mean, it's, a, you know, the fancy academic term is that this is a dialectical relationship. They're both acting upon each other. They rise up together. Um, so it's a, it's, an, it's a complicated interplay between audience and media producers. But I think to just show that it's the audience who doesn't want this, um, for one thing, this is what economists call a merit good. News and information should be seen not only as public goods, but as merit goods. Merit goods are based on people's needs, not just their wants, right? So they might not want to hear about what's happening at the local city hall. Um, They might be bored to tears if you tell them, you know, what happened in in state Government last week, but we need to have that information produced. It needs to be out there. There need to be journalists on the beat, whether they're covering anything or not, so that when things do happen and people are suddenly paying attention, we actually have a journalist there. And so if it's always dictated by the once, if it's always dictated by what people will pay for, then we can guarantee there's going to be these massive silences or just people not on the beat for when things do get crazy right? We need to have people there. Um, So I don't, I'm not sure if that exactly gets to your question, but it's just that I don't, I really try, I take pains not to frame this as a demand side problem, because I think that risks naturalizing the status quo. You know, it's just like, it just reflects what people, uh, you know, like, this is just what people want. And we show, I mean, audiences are cultivated over time as well. So if we're giving them if we're screaming at them and they expect to see a a, a wrestling match, you know, like that's going to be what they want to see. Whereas if you tune into the BBC, it's just very calm. You know, this is what the Brits expect when they look to the BBC, it's going to be a very polite, calm discussion.
1: Mm -hmm.
11: And I've just been thinking about the, I live in Peterborough, New Hampshire. We have uh, the Monadnock ledger transcript, which is seems to be doing well and covers a, a, Few small towns around this area, but one thing they've done, I think, to um, manage to survive, is there's a collective uh, group of reporters uh, who are uh, working for the public radio and for other other surrounding newspapers and they share their stories. So we may read in our local newspaper, a story that was um, originally produced for the local, for New Hampshire Public Radio, or, or the Concord Monitor, which owns, I think, I think it owns our local newspaper, Um, that, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of cooperation among the the reporters is that the kind of thing that's going on in other places
12: yes but only in a few other places uh you know and and it's something that i always try to highlight as a promising development in an otherwise fairly dismal landscape are these growing partnerships i think collaboration is key especially these partnerships between public uh, broadcasting stations and local uh, print outlets so here in philly Whyy bought Billy Penn? Uh, with Billy Penn was this digital uh, news outlet that's that's pretty well regarded and covers some really does produces some really good journalism. But what you're seeing there is that that moves it out of a purely commercial uh, situation. I'm not sure if Billy Penn was purely commercial before or not, but it just you know it gives them a kind of public support, which yeah. is beginning to approximate the model that I'm that I'm calling for, WBZ in Chicago, bought the Um, Sun-Times, that was a major merger. So I think those partnerships are great, Mm -hmm. but they tend only to work in certain areas. You know, it's in big cities, we're seeing this a lot. And going back to the earlier uh, example of like Newton, you know, there are going to be some communities that are in better positions for various reasons. There are local philanthropists, there are uh, people who who are willing to pay for news. A highly educated audience always helps, Um, you know, so but those kinds of factors aren't true for most communities across the country. And that's why we're seeing these news deserts. So, you know, for every time we say, look at this great model, we have to be clear. You know, we have to ask the question, is that scalable? Is that replicable? You know, can we do that everywhere? If we can't, we have to we have to own up to that. Mm -hmm. Jeff. Uh, yeah, I, I get the sense
9: that our media experience in Spain is feel, feels very different from what what uh, other people have been describing. We subscribe to what we what I think is one of one of Europe's best papers, which is El Pais. I think it's as good as Le Monde, certainly, or or uh, the Frankfurt or the or, you know papers or the Italian La Repubblica or any of or any of them. Um, and they often call, collaborate actually the European uh the uh, um, newspapers will work together on a theme well, well of course one of the big examples was on WikiLeaks that, that was they had a, a a huge collaboration of uh, uh among all major papers including uh, British um and well the great advantage of so we get we get the paper, the newspaper and paper uh, every day pick that up. but we also have, have access to it online with of course, the advantage that you have all these links that you can follow up a story. you can uh, you know you can get more detail, read other articles in and in other media. So um, I don't know I, 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 as for local reporting, um i think this is true in spain and i think it's probably true in other european countries that um they have editions for different regions uh, in fact there's an edition of, of of el país that's published in catalan another language for the, for that for the the catalonian uh and valencian people um so uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't feel this deprived of local news, um, as as I sense people, some parts of the United States may.
12: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, it's true that certain parts of the country or certain parts of the world have not been hit as hard uh, as the U.S. But in fact, I mean, what used to be thought of as just like the American journalism crisis is increasingly becoming. Uh-huh. Global journalism crisis. I mean, they're talking about news deserts in the UK. They're talking about news deserts across Europe. So, you know, it is a problem across the board. But there are various reasons why uh, a lot, especially a lot of European countries have been able to stave off some of the worst uh, elements of this journalism crisis. And also, you put your finger on an important point that hasn't come up yet, which is in many countries, the big national papers are still doing fairly well. And even in our country, the big three, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and New York Times, have all been doing really well. I mean Washington Post is starting to look a little shakier, but the New York Times is th- these are like golden days for the New York Times. Mm-hmm. They've never been making so much money. They've never been able to hire so many reporters and that gives us false illusion this you know gives us this false sense of stability when they're really the exceptions. Uh, and you know every other size mm-hmm. newspaper is struggling right now.
6: But Victor, mm-hmm. stick on that for a while. Why the, the New York Times is making a lot of money? But they're ma- where are they making it? Are they making it with their food, uh, the, the recipes? Are they making you know, or are they making it with the daily news? I I, I I admire the Times. It just shows up on my porch every morning, and and I read it avidly. But I think they have been brilliant in in getting different revenue streams into the into the company.
12: Yeah, it's absolutely true. They've been savvy uh, in, you know, generating these different, uh, you know, crossword puzzle, like all these different ways to, to make money and tap into engaged uh, supporters of their product. However, I always have to say, you know, that model is not going to work for most size newspapers. And the biggest reason why they are flourishing is simply because unlike almost all other newspapers, they're able to move. Most of their money is coming from subscribers now, not from mm. advertising.
4: Mm. So
12: they've been able to move past the advertising model. And it's simple it comes down to numbers. They have a massive they're a national, even arguably international mm. newspaper. So they have a massive readership that most newspapers can never even come close to. And so even if only a certain percentage, you know, they're able to tap their their readers for Affordable subscriptions, and you know they're just making tons of money. Um, but even there, there have been moments where it's like they think it's going to keep climbing, and you know every once in a while there's some, there's a dip. So I'm not sure this will work forever. But they are they are definitely you know they, they are doing very well right now. Yeah,
0: David, David Allen, um, I want you to hear
12: from a dead
3: tree hugger. Um, we get three papers in here every morning uh, the obvious papers, the times the journal, I hate to get the damn thing but you got to look at it, and of course the globe, and uh, weekly we get the, uh, the Guardian weekly, uh, and I'll even make a suggestion about why uh, print, readership may not be dead, print is a 3,000 year old technology going back to papyrus and there is a reason why it has survived all that time. It interfaces with human cognitive system uh, in an extraordinarily powerful way. It brought up earlier was the um serendipity of being able to discover things that you just won't discover otherwise. But let me move on from this uh attempt at a testimonial to uh, go back to originally you'd, I thought, very powerfully suggested you'd pointed out that um, the way we might move to a public model is to start locally because that's where people actually care even the conservatives care um, it's crucial to have some sort of trigger how do how do we move how do we get there and I want to now ask uh, in your article again great pleasure to find it down toward the end you notice that there might I put it this way, a sort of cabal amongst other what amount to public activities like libraries. I happen to live with the uh, now, of course, retired director of the local library. I'm all too attentive as a result. But more than that, post offices, well, yeah, that's government control. But do you see any way that uh, this larger group uh, and uh, I don't want to miss the point you've made about uh, what you call media centers, uh, which bring in, as you put it, uh, the whole uh, nine yards, the the print, the audio, the video, and so forth. But getting a little wilder beyond that, is there a place for some hookup amongst these other public entities? And I don't have a list complete. What I remember is libraries and post offices.
12: Yes, yes. So I link these all together. I don't even think of them as a cabal, but that's an interesting way of putting it. <laughs> My but, naughty uh, word, sorry. No, no, that's uh, gives me some food for further thought. But it, but I, I think that uh, I see this as like these are taken for granted public spaces in our everyday lives that aren't run according to a market logic. Like they're not trying to make money, um, you know, To I mean, you know, it's, Generally speaking, Uh, they have to be
3: sustainable, but that's all. That's right.
12: But usually they're sustainable through massive subsidies. Right. They're not. You know, And and that's why I think it's a natural place to begin if we're going to try to cobble together already existing public infrastructures to create a new anchor institution. So you have got you've got a a public library, a public school and a public media center in every every community across the land. And, uh, you know, it's like it seems weird at first, but we could get used to that, you know. And but but going back to your earlier point of like, how do we start moving towards this? We first have to make sure that enough people are aware of the local journalism crisis. And certainly since the pandemic, I think awareness has risen dramatically. But even as late as as 2019, a Pew Research Center study showed that the vast majority of Americans had not the slightest clue that there was some sort of local journalism crisis. They just did not, you know, and if you think about it, especially as people are getting information from online, a casual observer would never know that there isn't, you know, original reporting being produced at the local level.
0: That was Professor Victor Picard. His book is titled Democracy Without Journalism, Confronting the Misinformation Society. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcasts. Our podcast. Our podcasts also stream on wioxradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.